I first started running about 15 years ago as a way to quit smoking. Back then, my running clothes were very Rocky Balboa, so sweatpants, sweatshirt. Anyone who goes hiking or trail running knows that it's a lot easier and a lot more fun when you're wearing the right gear. Jonji makes performance apparel that'll take you farther on your runs and hikes. They have this merino wool hoodie that I wore on multiple trail runs this weekend. It's soft, it's warm, and most importantly, it does not get stinky when you get stinky. Another reason to love Jonji is that they donate 2% of all sales towards clean water projects, raising nearly $1 million so far. Head to Jonji.com to find your new favorite trail wear, outdoors accessories, and essentials. And use the code OUTSIDE for 10% off at Jonji.com. That's J-A-N-J-I.com with the code OUTSIDE for 10% off. When I was a little kid, my whole family, grandparents included, packed into a Dodge Caravan and went on a two-week road trip to Wyoming. We saw the rodeo in Cody, a grizzly bear in Yellowstone National Park, and an epic thunderstorm near Devil's Tower. On that trip, I fell in love with the West and the natural world. This might sound cheesy, but it kind of made me who I am today. Wyoming has it all. Breathtaking hikes, kid-friendly museums, two of the coolest national parks in the country. The truth lies West. Discover yours at TravelWyoming.com. FYI, there is a swear in this episode. It's in context, and it happens after the break. Okay, here's the show. This is Outside In. I am Sam Evans-Brown. And I am Justine Paradise. And together, we are welcoming you all to our very first Outside In book club. Our first pick and the subject of today's conversation is Trace, Memory, History, Race, and the American Landscape, by Laurette Savoy. Trace was published in 2015. It is Laurette's first solo work of nonfiction, and it's a memoir that takes her from where she was born in Southern California, across the country, to Puritan New England, from Lake Superior to the U.S.-Mexico border, and finally to Washington, D.C., where she grew up. In the book, Laurette uses the search for her family story as a lens to better understand American history, and the reverse, using the American landscape as a lens to better understand her own past. In this episode, we'll be sharing excerpts of our conversation with Laurette Savoy and excerpts of her book, and then talking it out together. You know, like a podcast book club discussion. Yay! And going forward, we'd love to hear your thoughts and questions about either this book um, or the next pick for the book club. Which we will announce at the end of the episode. Yep, so if you want to join the conversation, we are also starting a hashtag, which is reading outside in. And we invite you to use that hashtag on Twitter or Instagram. Just share a picture of yourself reading the book. Perhaps outside, if that's where you should happen to find yourself. doesn't have to be the book club pick. If you're reading outside, I'd say it counts. And again, the hashtag <laughs> is reading outside in. And make sure to tag us at Outside In Radio. We're just, we just want to normalize reading outside in the summer. Because it needs normalizing. As if, as <laughs> if this is something that's not normalized already. <laughs> We're making a stand <laughs> for people reading in parks. So, without further ado, here's our conversation with Laurette Savoy. Finding fossils means finding very, very few pieces of the archive of life and death on Earth. And it's not the entire history of the world. We may have only a very small percentage uh, recorded in rocks, recorded in fossils, of what once was. 
I want to start with a specific example from the book that really hit home for me, and it sets the tone for the discussion. It takes place at a spot called Crow's Nest Pass. Crow's Nest Pass is a mountain pass and highway through the Canadian Rockies, and it's also a geological wonder that marks the boundary of an ancient continental divide. Laurette was there to study environmental changes in ancient oceans, changes that occurred hundreds of millions of years ago. And these changes occurred when a tropical sea um, covered most of the continent. And if you can imagine the seas in the Caribbean, uh, the waters surrounding uh, the Bahamas, uh, the beautiful turquoise waters, imagine that on a continental scale. I mean, honestly, that sounds pretty amazing. Well, yeah, until those waters became so starved of oxygen that organisms could no longer survive, which happened at such a large scale that this was actually a great extinction event. Laurette said the telltale sign of that loss of oxygen are these layers of black shale, like at Crow's Nest Pass. And while looking at that interval of black shale, uh, with our hammers, we just pulled out these slices of black shale and chipped into them, and we found on the surfaces these fossils that we'd never seen before. They kind of look like uh, little fish fossils um, or little drawings of fish that a child would make. And when we brought them back to show to experts, uh, the people who were the fish people said, no, 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 they're not fish. And they said, they're, they're probably plants. And then we showed them to the plant people and they said, no, 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 they're probably fish. And it finally came down to there being a new type of organism. And so a new genus and species was named on, um, based on them, but without a sense of where they fell in whether they were plants or animals. And so they're in Certesedis. In Certesedis, it's Latin for of uncertain placement. Laurette discovered a fossil that was not fish, not plant, not animal. It was a fossil she could not place. And Laurette also wrote that she herself has lived as incertesedis of uncertain placement. I love this very specific perspective of being both geologist and writer to the point yeah. that you would identify with a fossil. <laughs> <You know? laughs> so Laurette's academic background is geology, but she told us that these days she identifies first as a writer. And one reason we thought that she'd be a great pick for our first book club is that her writing really lives at that place, at the intersection between earth science and human culture. I define geology or geologo, that is, that's from the Greek for understanding earth. I define it much more broadly than scientists do. And for me, my writing in Trace is a form of doing geology, that is, uh, understanding earth and our place on it. The science of geology, yes, it offers an elemental foundation of place, yet it is also uh, an offering of, at least in my view, of metaphor for considering the deposition and erosion of human memory and the fragmentation and displacement of human experience. And for me, race and racism have been key to it all. But as far as why Laurette specifically relates to that fossil of uncertain origins, Laurette is a person of complex heritage. She's got ancestral roots in Africa, the British Isles, Europe, and Indigenous America. So her origins were even mysterious to herself. 
But not only does she identify with the fossil, but also the book itself is kind of a drawn-out metaphor comparing fossil hunting to history hunting. Specifically, the way that the fossil record and the historical record are both full of huge gaps. Here's Lorette reading an excerpt of Trace. The journeys that once living organisms embark on toward the fossil record, few rarely complete. Happy accidents brought these remains within my reach. Of their escaping decay on a quiet seafloor too inhospitable for hungry scavengers and most bacteria. Of thrust faults upheaving bedrock once deeply buried. Of erosion cutting into ranges such that a highway could be built along a path of least resistance, yet not dissecting so far as to destroy the outcrop, of my hammer splitting the right shale layers. Annals of the past in these mountains lie incomplete and fragmented. Millions of years may be lost in the gaps between black shale lamina so thin as to be pages of a book of night. I mean, what a phrase, book of night. Right? Like the gaps in the fossil record, there are also blank spots in Laurette's family history. In fact, it sounds like it was easier for Laurette to look at the landscape and identify the geologic story, which is kind of inscrutable to many of us, than it was to find the answers about some of her own family history. Yeah, it's just so interesting that something that might have happened, you know, 350 million years ago might actually be closer to her than something that happened 300 years ago or even 20 years, you know? Yeah, it's wild. One example of a major silence in her family history, and she talks about a lot of them in the book, but there's one that occurred in the relationship between her and her father. Laurette writes that growing up, her father was a rather silent, embittered person, and their relationship was somewhat strained by the time she was a teenager. She told us that he never really shared much about his earlier life with her. But eventually, as a young adult, Laurette made a pretty big discovery about her father, one that was kind of a revelation. I uh, was in college at that point. It was the end of my first year. I I went to Princeton University. uh, But at the end of my first year, I was in the the library, Firestone Library. And uh, instead of studying for finals, I was procrastinating and looking um, to see if there might be books in the library by people I know. and so I, I looked in the card catalog, and this was when the card catalog was nearing its end. And so I was flipping through S's, trying to see, well, could there be another Savoy here? And I saw the card for Savoy, comma, Willard Wilson, alien land. And Willard Wilson Savoy was my father. And so I uh, found the book in the basement stacks of the library, and I pulled it out, and it was a novel written by my father uh, more than a decade and a half before my birth, and it was a book he never told me about. Willard Wilson, her father, died less than two years before Laurette found his book in the library. 
at a time when, again, she said their relationship was pretty strained. So when Lorette found the book, she read it. It's about a multiracial boy, a boy who could pass as white, and his struggle to navigate how to live in the world. She told us she's learned it's at least semi-autobiographical. Should he or could he escape racism and his own demons by redefining himself as white? And so I won't, I won't say what, what choice he makes, uh, because that is a large part of the story. But finding a, a book written by my father uh, just... I can't describe the, the feeling. And could we stop for a moment so that I could find pull out the book? Because I've got it. Oh, right absolutely. Here. Yep. Okay, let me pull it out. The dedication in the book said this. To the child which my wife and I may someday have, and to the children of each American, in the fervent hope that at least one shall be brought to see more clearly the enduring need for simple humanity. It goes on, but when I read those words, I broke down in tears. Uh, I sat on the floor in the basement of the library for I, I can't remember how long, holding the book, hugging the book, crying, because I thought here was a chance, possibly, for a conversation with my father, a conversation I never had with him. And so I stole the book. I stole it. I had to. And I, I, I apologize, but I, I had to take it. Uh, as an 18-year-old, at that point I had just turned 18, I was struggling to understand who I was and to see that he as a, as a youth had asked the same questions uh, just, just felt as if I had found a connection with a parent uh, with whom I thought I never had a connection. I feel like when she's describing this moment in the library, you can really hear in her voice just how meaningful and formative a moment this was for her. Right, and to find it out in that way is such a shock. I feel like this experience became a big motivator for Laurette to search for the unsaid within and beyond her family. So there's another book that figures really heavily in Trace, and that book is Aldo Leopold's A Sand County Almanac. Right. A Sand County Almanac is famous in environmental circles. It came out in the same year as Lorette's father's book, 1949, and it includes an essay about the concept of a land ethic, which essentially he says we should enlarge the definition of what we consider community to include soil and water and plants, collectively the land. Which sounds basically like an indigenous idea, right? Mm-hmm. But in the context of the U.S. environmental movement, this was an expansive idea, but for Laurette, it sounds like it was a pretty frustrating read. Because even though this was a book that was focused on American history and land, it only references slavery in a pretty strange way. It talks about the conflict of considering land as property and says that that's as outdated an idea as considering human beings to be property. But Leopold doesn't refer to slavery in America when he does this. 
And I asked, why was it that in a book so concerned about America's past, why was it that the only reference to slavery in that book, to human beings as property, was about ancient Greece? So while I enjoyed the parts of the book that considered the land, the seasons and place, I so feared that any reference that Aldo Leopold made to we and us excluded me. For Laurette, these books do belong on the same shelf. For years, I struggled to reconcile these two books, these two ideas. I had to understand the distance between them and whether or not that distance could be narrowed. And so it was only slowly that I came to see that I would remain complicit in my own diminishment unless I stepped out of the separate trap. Me from you, us from them, brown skin from depigmented skin, relations among people from relations with land. I know that Aldo Leopold and my father never met in their lifetimes, but my fervent hope is that alien land and land ethic can meet and answer to each other in ours. They need to. They need to. So, for Lorette, the practice of geology, you know, understanding the earth, necessarily has to include race. For her, a Sand County almanac and alien land are essentially, I think, twin pillars of her entire approach in trace. Like, human history becomes metaphorically, or even literally, another layer in the sort of geologic strata, you know? And there are these twin silences, right? That there's so much that's unsaid between her and her father, and, you know, also what's not included in environmental history. Yeah, I feel like this is what set her on the path, like you said. She seeks out what's erased or unsaid. And that's actually something I love about the title, Trace. It intentionally functions as both a noun and a verb. So what Trace, one thing that Trace is, is a journey. If you think of um, the Odyssey and what Odysseus said in the Odyssey, he said that I belong in the place of my departure and I belong in the place that is my destination. And I see this as saying that the act of the journey, the act of tracing and seeking is just as important as the trace itself. And in all, I hope that trace could counter what are some of our oldest and most damaging public silences by revealing often unrecognized ties, such as the sighting of the nation's capital and the economic motives of slavery. Coming up on Outside In, how Lorette sought answers about these public silences and what they said about her family. We'll talk about what's said and not said in the story of how the U.S. Capitol was placed in Washington, D.C. Plus, I learned a new word, a word that helps me understand how history is erased and remembered in the American landscape. None of these ties is coincidental. Too few of them appear in public history, yet they all touch us. That's after a break. Reminder, there's a swear in this episode. It's coming up. All right, back to the show. 
This is Outside In. I'm Sam Evans-Brown with producer Justine Paradise. And it is the first Outside In book club. We're talking about the book Trace, Memory, History, Race, and the American Landscape. And I actually learned a new word and a new concept from this book. Here I am speaking with author Laurette Savoy. That I learned from your book, and I'm hoping that I'm going to pronounce it correctly. Is it palimpsest? You could pronounce it different ways, palimpsest or palimpsest. Um, I've heard it both ways, and I will let the Oxford English Dictionary tell us which one's correct. But you said it fine. So what is a palimpsest? I think that the key thing to think about it is that it's a surface, like an old parchment, on which the original text has been erased or partially erased and then overwritten by something else, something that's come later, yet still traces of what was there are still apparent to the attentive eye. And this is a real thing, right? This is like paper used to be scarce, and so sometimes people would just write over something that had already, had already been written on. Yep, reuse, recycle, exactly. <laughs> I love thinking about the different things that could be considered palimpsests. Um, like I think our bodies, for instance, like we start out written, you know, with genes from our primate parents and then life writes all over us, like with scars, with the way we use our bodies, like what muscles we exercise, uh, how often we sit or climb or, or crawl, how often we laugh. And so then eventually we're shaped and wrinkled in ways that like make us palimpsest. I think we become like readable to a degree. Mm. Um, and I think a city, too, like the way that a warehouse in New York City, for instance, might get renovated into luxury condos, maybe. But then you still see the industrial past and the details of the building, like the building is only partially erased. Yeah. Perhaps another obvious example of this, or maybe it's not obvious until you start to think about it, is our maps, how we name our places. Here's Lorette reading from the book. Walt Whitman wrote in his American Primer, All the greatness of any land at any time lies folded in its names. Names are the turning point of who shall be master. If history can be read in the names on the land, then the text at the surface is partial and pieced. A reader might do well to look beyond official maps for traces of other languages, other visions. He or she might do well to acknowledge and mourn the loss of innumerable names born out of textured homelands that no longer reside in living memory. What's important to think about is that names wear meanings uh, that many people don't realize. And you can name anything, New Hampshire, Brooklyn, Massachusetts, Mississippi, Badlands. All of that is really an important and, for too many, unrecognized part of American history. Because being very far from innocent, naming and mapping were for Europeans um, and their descendants who have lived here essential to the project of claiming this land. Laurette's point, I think, is that, you know, names are not passive, even the ones that maybe seem like they are. Like, even the names that might seem more quote-unquote authentic or indigenous look twice. 
Yeah. The story that for me was the most mind-blowing was the origin of the name Wyoming, um, which it's a Lenape word for a valley, not in what's called Wyoming today, but in Pennsylvania. And it means in Lenape, you know, at the big flats or great meadows. And, And during the Revolutionary War, about 300 or so settlers were killed there by British forces and their indigenous allies. And later in the 1800s, someone wrote a poem to commemorate that battle. So Wyoming became the sort of apocryphal idea and and lots of towns all across the United States are named for it and and eventually after the civil war congress was debating what the name of this territory should be there were so many names that were argued um tribal names from the area were considered um Cheyenne uh received the the most attention until one senator thought it sounded too close to the word for a female dog chien and then people were thinking, or he was thinking that if you think of a female dog, you might think of bitch. And so they didn't want that name. And so in the end, the name that won the day was Wyoming because of its sound and its poetic association, but not because it had anything to do with the place. It's a name that was transported and translated across the country from the East. It's like the name Wyoming didn't have anything to do with the actual, you know, territory of Wyoming. It had to do with the story that white settlers wanted to tell about this new country. It kind of reminds me of how, you know, subdivisions and, uh, you know, housing developments today will be named things like Oak Hill or Beaver Meadow. And it's it's named for what was there before the land was cleared <laughs> and paved. And so it's it's... You know, you name lands for what they were, or at least the story of what you want to evoke about that place. Or like what you had to destroy mm. to make that place. Yeah. And it, it partly, it, the names sort of tell you about the namers of the place more than anything else. It's partly the indigenous names that had so many in the 19th century believe uh, that the United States were stepping away from from Europe, that they had something all their own. But the irony is it was something that was was taken from, appropriated, and then modified to be made their own. Can I bring us to another example from the book? Totally. I think we should look at the story that Laurette lays out about the decision and placement of the capital city of the United States, Washington, D.C., because this is a moment that I think speaks volumes. It's a place and a moment where so much coincides, like the shape of the land itself, the history of slavery in the U.S., and Laurette's family history. They're all here. So first of all, the shape of the land itself. How did D.C. get placed where it is? And this is a lot easier to see if you're looking at a map. But if you look at the East Coast and see the Appalachian Mountains, which run up and down north-south, there's a contour line that's basically the line between the mountain range and the coastal plain. And there are all these cities right on that edge. It's like they're all marching in step or something. And the reason that this is is that ships traveling up rivers from the ocean, so rivers are these access points inland, they reach this contour line And what they see are waterfalls and rapids. 
And this is called the fall line. Right. So so from the perspective of the settlers coming in on ships, it's a stopping point. You drop anchor because you have to. Yeah. And again, it's really striking when you look at it on a topography map. Like you have this string, almost like a necklace of major cities up and down the East Coast, right along the fall line. And they're still there, like major cities like Baltimore, Maryland, Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, and capital cities like Richmond, Virginia. And Washington, D.C. Yeah. I opened the chapter, the last chapter in Trace, placing Washington, D.C. after the inauguration. And this is the inauguration of of President Barack Obama. I open it by standing on the bank of the Potomac River, and it's where I go on every visit to D.C. And this is the place my father's people called home. I knew that the Potomac River, which flows by the city, carried what some call the freight of history on its back. And I knew that I was part of the river's load. But how was I part? Part of this inquiry started from a place of curiosity. When she wrote the book, she knew at least five generations of her ancestors had lived in Washington, D.C. But she also knew that when she was 12 years old, her Aunt Rhoda told her that her family had never been enslaved. So what was their story? How were they tied to this place? Her telling me that, uh, of course began the wondering, the questioning. I knew that the nation's capital had been a contested place since its deliberate sighting in 1790, and I knew that the city condoned both chattel servitude and the trade of captive Africans within its borders uh, for more than half a century. I knew that slave pens and markets stood within sight of the capital building itself, And I knew the vestiges of slavery's landscape and architecture still remain in plain sight, including structures like the Capitol and the White House, which were built largely by enslaved laborers. Again, cities are palimpsests. Like, the people who built places are in a way the thing that gets overwritten. Like the sweat and labor of enslaved people who quarried the stone and literally constructed the symbols of the federal government. In fact, the U.S. Capitol had been moved a couple of times, eventually making it to D.C. from New York and Philadelphia, a city known for its abolitionist movement. So while part of this history is related to the topography and the landscape, rivers and waterfalls and soils, so much of it is tied to the country's relationship with slavery. In the colonial period, in the 1600s and the 1700s, the basic meanings of whiteness and blackness were being invented in Virginia, in Maryland. But if Laurette's family had lived in D.C. for five generations, and slavery was such a part of the city's history, what of her family's past? Where were they? So as she was searching through family records, Laurette did learn how she was part of that history. She eventually found an inventory for an estate owned by a white naval officer. And one item in that inventory was actually a name, a relative, her great-great-grandmother, Eliza Savoy, and next to the name, $300. And I think something that comes up for me here, which um, maybe brings us back to this theme of how looking for fossils and looking for history have such commonalities, that like, when you look at massive geologic events, you can kind of know the story of a specific individual or species like in the aggregate um, because you know the bigger story. 
But as you try to get closer and closer to specificity and to the and to the individual, um, the real story kind of gets further and further away. It slips away. And it makes me wonder, like, who gets to be an individual in history, like have their specific stories known and told? Like in the case of her great great grandmother, it took Laurette sifting through family records and years of silence in her family to finally get at this one trace, to use her word, of a person, like one answer. Yeah. It's like there's so much there's so much chance involved in who gets to have a historical record. You know, it's like were you born into a situation in which you had the time to like write a memoir and did people care about it? And it almost feels the same with with the geologic record, right? Like it like are you the fly that just happened to be trapped in amber? But it's but it's not just chance too, right? Like it, it it's like I feel like a you know, if you're a land-owning white man in European history, you have this much greater chance of being caught in amber, so to speak. But, like, the geologic event or what the human geological event that was slavery, which was, like, an obliterating event, you know, um, of memory and history and, and records for so many people, um, you you reach a certain point and then, and then beyond that it's, like, oblivion, you know? Since encountering that trace of her great-great-grandmother, Lorette told us that she's learned a lot more. And that's actually her next project. So I've learned since then that ancestral roots extend very deeply into Chesapeake Earth. I've learned that forebears were tied to the colonial projects of Virginia and Maryland. And I learned that ancestors belong to a growing population of free people of color up to two centuries before the Civil War. I didn't know this when I was writing about Trace, but I am writing about it now. I'm writing about how these earlier lives directly encountered the origins of race and racism in this land and the vast terrain between freedom and enslavement. Trace. Active search, path taken. Track or vestige of what once was. These narrative journeys have crossed textured lands seeking both life marks and home from twisted terrain within the San Andreas Fault Zone to Indian Territory, from Point Sublime to burial grounds, from a South Carolina plantation to the U.S.-Mexico border and U.S. capital. Their confluence articulates, that is, helps me both join together and give clearer expression to the unvoiced past in my life. Remembering is an alternative to extinction. Home indeed lies among the ruins and shards that surround us all. Laura, thank you so much. Thank you, Sam. It it was a pleasure to be with you. Thank you very much.
That was Laurette Savoy, author of Trace, Memory, History, Race, and the American Landscape. This was our very first outside-in book club, which we are aiming to do every couple of months. The next pick is Four Lost Cities, A Secret History of the Urban Age by Annalie Newitz. It's about the rise and fall of four ancient cities, Chitalhuyuk, Angkor, Pompeii, and Cahokia, and what these cities tell us about environmental change and how we think about civilization. Reminder, too, that we're starting a hashtag, hashtag reading outside in. Take a picture of yourself or your book that you're reading, perhaps outside, if that's where you happen to find yourself. And do not forget to tag us. We're at Outside In Radio on Twitter and Instagram. And we'd love to hear your thoughts on either of these books, Trace or Four Lost Cities. If you've got a question for Annalie Newitz, send them our way. We may incorporate them into our interview. We may also share your thoughts in our bi-weekly newsletter. And you can get yourself signed up for that at our website, outsideinradio.org. And don't forget, we are a production of a public radio station. While you're doing all this, please consider donating to support the show, outsideinradio.org. This episode was produced by Justine Paradise with me, Sam Evans-Brown, and support from Taylor Quimby and Felix Poon. Erica Janik is our executive producer. Music in this episode by Chris Zabriskie and Blue Dot Sessions. Theme music by Breakmaster Cylinder. Outside In is a member-supported podcast and a production of New Hampshire Public Radio.